Namaste and good evening to all of you. Tonight in uh, my discourse towards to the school, to the to everybody, I chose to do to bring up a few musings, a few thoughts about the man-woman relationship, the spiritual man-woman relationship as understood in yoga and tantra, especially given the fact that we are in the middle of a series of workshops on the foundations of tantra, the taste of tantra, the tantra of relationships, complete femininity and the development of masculinity. And to understand these things in the perspective and separate from what they teach in the workshops, um, I wanted to present a few values because this story of the man-woman relationship, is, uh, it, it has some aspects which are very easily misunderstood. And um, actually, it's very, very specific to Tantra. The fact that you are here in a Tantric school means that you see many people who are here not as individual practitioners, as seekers of knowledge. Either they seek the knowledge to understand how yoga heals diseases, or that they are seekers of Atman, that they are seekers of the Supreme Self and of the Supreme Identity. But, as I say, you see here people who are seekers of whatever they are seeking through this method of yoga and tantra, and not presenting themselves as alone, as the Steppenwolfe of Hermann Hesse, the lonely wolf who pursues a quest of himself or of herself. But you often see people who appear in couples, who are in relationships, which of course if you would be in a Buddhist monastery or in a Christian monastery, it would be completely out of question, uh, even when people are segregated based on their gender, uh, it's more than that. We're not talking about a relationship. You cannot say that a Christian nun, being in a monastery, has a sort of a white, chaste relationship with a monk who is in another monastery a hundred kilometers away, because every nun in a Christian monastery has a ring on her left ring finger, which makes her married to Jesus. So they don't have any other relationship except the one with Jesus. So here you are in Tantra and Tantra is and has a very special spiritual outlook. And we start from the understanding that in all the other spiritual outlooks, relationships are rather a nuisance. They are an obstacle. Great authors, like I'm turning again, perhaps for the second time in another work, to Hermann Hesse, when he, in his work Siddhartha, where he discovered, where he describes the spiritual travel of Siddhartha, actually the final obstacle of Siddhartha himself is the fact that Siddhartha had a child. 
And when Siddhartha is almost an enlightened master, spending the golden years of his life on the shore of the Ganges, meditating and ripening, preparing for the final transformation, his son is coming by, chased by the police, with problems, living in this nightmarish drama of samsara. No? And then, like what should Siddhartha do? Stay detached? Can he stay detached and just look? Like his son is another citizen of the world who is living in a drama and has produced his ups and downs. And of course you try to help them, but they go astray anyway. No, you try to help some people telling them if you eat so much meat, you are going to get a cancer in your colon. And they do it anyway. They don't care about what you tell them. So even Siddhartha can tell to his son, stop being such a fool. And the fool will still be a fool. It's very difficult for a fool to stop being a fool. And therefore, it's like, even for this essential character, a relationship which is not a man-woman relationship. It's a parent-child relationship. And even this relationship is his last major spiritual test. Like, is he going to be blinded by it, attached by it, or is his divine quest going to have the first priority in his life, and is he going to preserve his divine outlook? That's why relationships in many other spiritualities, especially, and even in science, in social activism, they are considered to be a nuisance and a delay. For example, the great Albert Einstein, who was, paradoxically, we know him as a scientist, but in his private life, Albert Einstein was a man who had quite a few relationships with women. He was a lover of women, and he was a bit of a butterfly going from one flower to another flower. And Albert Einstein, who experienced a little bit the drama of relationships, in the end of his life, when he was a famous scientist, he used to tell to his disciples, he used to give an advice which he himself had not been able to apply. He said, don't get married if you really want to be a Nobel Prize winner, a big scientist, so that you should not belong to one woman, but to the whole humanity. Like, you know, if you want to spend Saturday evening in the laboratory doing scientific research until four o'clock in the morning, your wife is going to be disappointed and upset. And then perhaps the most simple thing is not to have a wife. No. And then just, you know, then you can give yourself completely to the spiritual ideals. Mahatma Gandhi, in uh, his activism, eventually noticed the same thing, that his disciples who were married, they always were disrupted from their activity for India, they were disrupted by the fact that they had needs with a wife, with a husband, in the family. And Mahatma Gandhi said the best activists are the ones who stay unmarried, get married to the truth. He called them satyagrahis instead of graha, which comes from the relation, from the, there is a word which designates the marriage institution, which ends in graha. He basically, instead of that, he said satyagraha. Instead of married to a woman, married to truth, to the
to true, like married to God, married to a principle. And even the previous or two times previous Prime Minister of India was one of these Satyagrahis. Like it, this institution exists 60 years after the death of Gandhi. It still persists with people. Uh, they say for the sake of being the perfect politician, the perfect servant, the perfect dedicated person, then the family will split you. You have to put bread and butter on the table for the family, then you can't work as much as you wanted for the other things. So anyway, I'm just trying to show that relationships are frowned upon because in normal situations, the relationships are bringing up attachment. They are bringing up dependence. They are bringing up lots of factors which prevent us. And that's why the fact that in a strange doctrine called Tantra, the relationships and the sexuality in itself, they have been exploited for the purpose of spiritual emancipation, it's very paradoxical. Because everybody else, the ashramites from India, the monks from Buddhism, the Christian monks and nuns, and so many others, they stay away from it. Like a dis it's a disturbing factor. And that's why Tantra is very paradoxical in this way. And that's why obviously it preaches something very unusual. Because Albert Einstein is the one who also said that to keep performing the same actions as other people and to expect different results is the definition of madness. Like if you live your life as your grandmother, you are going to get from your life exactly what your grandmother got from it. If you live your relationships as your grandmother or grandfather, you are going to get in the end of your life exactly what your grandmother and grandfather got from it. And that's why, obviously, here we are talking about a method of evolution which uh, may change your lives, but which has to be approached very seriously. Again, I don't intend to go into details because this is just a satsang, just a discourse generally on the topics, but um, I intend to call the attention on some of the aspects because it depends how far you are willing to push your spiritual aspiration. It's always about the aspiration. Otherwise, there will be no motivation enough. And because when you do this kind of methodology, one has to go against one's own ego. That's the biggest problem because we can give some landmarks for this red tantra, for this new age-ish type of diluted tantra, in which unfortunately, of course, um, it exists everywhere. We can teach in our tantra workshops until we turn blue that you have to practice tantra this way, this way, this way, this way. And then, of course, some people will just take the part which is convenient for them. It is also the fact that yoga nowadays has become many things. And some people, if they are interested in yoga for healing diseases, 
then they are also interested in Tantra for healing diseases, not for reaching the Shiva consciousness, not for reaching the Absolute. If some people are interested to learn yoga to improve their daily lives, like they don't want to make a huge spiritual leap. They just want to live a wonderful life. And yoga is a splendid instrument to make a lot of things great in your life, from health to balance of your emotions and psyche. A lot of things can be helped with yoga. And then, for many people then, if they approach Tantra from this angle, they say, hey, I came to learn Tantra to make my daily life splendid. Yeah, but that might not take you all the way to the supreme emancipation. Yeah, well, you know, that's maybe a secondary purpose for me. I don't know if I'm as determined as that. I would just like to use Tantra as a method of sexual healing and to make my sexual life and therefore my daily life really good. Then automatically such a person, in spite of whatever is being taught in a Tantra workshop, such a person is practicing by definition from the very beginning, acceptedly, admittedly, such a person practices a sort of a red Tantra. And then automatically we have to analyze if the definition of the Tantric relationships works from that standpoint or not. Because the rules of the game may change depending on what we are trying to achieve and what we are trying to accomplish. When we talk about Tantra from the standpoint of the ultimate aspirations, then automatically there are some rules of the game and automatically we see you know, that many spiritualists, in many spirit, they cannot be all stupid in Christianity, in Buddhism, in Hinduism, in Sufi Dargas, in Islam, therefore... No, they cannot all be stupid that they stay away from relationships, like relationships are a terrible complication in one's life. And then automatically, if we say, but we can use it, then automatically, here, it's a very slippery ground. It is my, in, it is my experience as being involved with Tantra uh, for all these years, that, of course, people are bringing the world with themselves. There's an expression somewhere. We said that some people have brought the world into a monastery. It was about Christian people. And they brought the world with themselves. Like in a monastery, they care about who is stronger, who has more money, who has more influence. If you go into a Christian monastery, you'll find power games, politics, they are not supposed to happen among the disciples of Jesus. Those people are supposed to be beyond that. But they happen. Why do they happen? They happen because people have brought the world into the monastery. They are supposed to leave it like the shoes. Leave your shoes. Osho Rajneesh in the ashram, in the old ashram of Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh in Pune, they had a funny script at the entrance which said, leave your shoes and mind at the entrance. You know, like come in with a fresh mind, ready to learn. If you come and give me what you have learned from school and family, it's like you are simply wasting my time. You know, because I'm not here to uh, 
I'm not interested in that. I've been there and done that. No? It's exactly a little bit the impolite, rude thing which is written by the entrance of Agama, which says when you are here, remember that you are not here to change Agama. Agama is here to change you. No? Because you are coming up with some thing which I have learned from, like, sure, no, that's the world. That's in a, in a yoga school, in a spiritual entity, things are moving in a different way because there are different rules of the game. The same thing is happening with relationships. There are people in Tantra, now if I'm speaking about the sexual Tantra because we are in the middle of, an, of a series of Tantra workshops, if you are in the middle of the sexual Tantra, some people in Tantra are even interested and I'm talking about men and women, more men than women, but both men and women, who would be interested to do Tantra without relationships. No, it's like, I would prefer that I have a Tantric partner who is like my best friend, my comrade. We are rowing in the same boat. We are heroes on the same path. We are like brother and sister. And on full moon, we meet at, I don't know how many hours before the full moon, and we are performing a lovemaking ritual in which we rise Kundalini Shakti and we bring the sexual energy to the crown chakra or at least to Ajna chakra. And this is our tantric spiritual practice. Then after that, I'm minding my business. She's minding my, her business. There is love between us. There is a brotherhood. Of course, we are not total strangers. But there is not too much rubbing of the shoulders either, because I need my space and time, she needs her space and time, and because of this, we are like many people, there are people in this room and in the environment of Tantra who would be interested in going that way. There are also people, probably more than 50%, in the environment of Tantra who would consider that savagely inhuman, you know, like it's really, really tough in some way, you know, like there is a sweetness that in the moment when you collaborate with somebody sexually, to put it in a funny way, uh, at the same time there is some sort of personal involvement. The problem is precisely with this personal involvement, because this personal involvement can be a nightmare and an obstacle and a delay and instead of you fulfilling your spiritual goals in 12 years you fulfill them in 40 years and with tears and sadness or perhaps a proper interaction a good chemistry between a man and a woman could increase that productivity that efficiency that they express their spirituality or they blossom in six years instead of 12. Like a relationship can accelerate my evolution or a relationship can slow it down because it adds lots of drama, lots of soap opera, lots of paraphernalia, which ultimately, when I, if we die tomorrow... No? Like some people can say, right now, me and my boyfriend, we are in this particular phase in our relationship and we're dealing with this. And the, and the question is, if you both get hit by the lightning tomorrow, what will this drama of today serve 
that thing of tomorrow. Like when you look through this perspective, you can say, well, if you put it like this, then it's a total waste of time that we are going through this loop, through this phase. Then, automatically, we are talking about factors which prolong the evolution and delay it. For some people, that's very meaningful. Because some people use relationships just to create an occupation. They are honestly people. I once met a woman who told me I would like to have a a child from a tantric man because I'm getting bored. I told her a child is not a toy to remove your boredom, you know. A child is not just a toy which the universe gives to you so you have an occupation in life. If you need a child to keep yourself busy, it means your life is empty and meaningless. And then when at the age of two or three, that child would be hit by a lightning bolt or would fall in a crevice in a mountain, then you are going to go suicidal and lose completely any meaning for living your life because you didn't have it to start with. Therefore, there are people who want children or relationships to just fill up a gap in their lives. They are empty, they get bored, and then they say, I'll have a relationship. But that relationship is not that I have something to give. It's not an overflow. It's not a generosity. It's not a selflessness. It's actually a need. I'm a beggar, and I'm begging for somebody to keep me company, because alone I feel empty and useless, and I get bored. Then, that's when I approach a relationship like a beggar, and automatically I'm going to cling, I'm going to be attached, I'm going to be miserable. While if I can be in the position to approach a relationship like a king, like somebody that has something to give, then automatically when a man and a woman give, both of them are on the overflow, then automatically there is no neediness and the relationship goes in another way, in another place. And um, that's why I'm saying, uh, even in tantric schools, this issue of relationship is debatable. There are stories known, there are urban legends, but they are known in the literature of India and Tibet, where different tantric schools, the Kaulas of India and others, they did have a very loose time of of relationship. They called themselves Kaula, which means a family, a noble circle. And that means there were 25 men and 25 women under the guidance of a guru, and it was all like a family. It was what today in modern society is called a polyamorous society, which means everybody loved everybody. They were like in a family. It was not that this person belonged in any way to that person or anything like this. Sometimes it's very alien to the Christian family concept or to some of the bourgeois family concepts from the West. But remember, you are not within bourgeoisie. When you go in a circle like the Kaulas of the 15th century or of the 10th century India... You are in circles of fanatic, extreme spiritual seekers. At the least, the Kaulas of India, at the least, 
they were chasing major magic powers. That was the least of their things. Most of them, they chased divine consciousness. They chased moksha, liberation. And for that purpose, they were ready to live their lives in a completely different way. That's why, do not be deluded, especially when you go to the extreme levels of Tantra. Again, if some of you are looking for a bit of the red Tantra to improve the quality of your sexuality and tenderness and some sexual healing, that's perfectly okay. Then basically your relationships stay as bourgeois relationships, or sometimes you simply drop out of relationships like the lonely wolf. But if you want to use relationships as a spiritual thing, do not be deluded because the relationships in Tantra are not just a direct extension of the relationships of your mom and dad, of your grandmother and grandfather. It's only an illusion. It looks so. But there is a huge gap between the two worlds because these people are living their life unconsciously and automatically and these other people have a crazy goal. They have an aspiration. They know in 12 years, in 20 years, in 40 years, in 6 lifetimes, whatever it takes, I shall reach Nirvikalpa Samadhi, I shall reach Shunyata, the void, and I shall reach Nirvana or Moksha and Mukti, the liberation. Then the life and the relationships, are they have to be in a very different way. That's why it's very easy, and the need of such a satsang like this one, it's very easy to bring the world into Agama. If people can bring the world into a Christian monastery or in a Buddhist monastery, people can very easily bring the world into a tantric school. Because you have relationships out there, for some people you have relationships in here. And then it's like, it's pretty much the same. No, there are actually things which are violently against it. Because just to anticipate, I have a list of issues here, but one of them, just to make it clear at this point, spiritual evolution is meant to diminish, to a large extent, the ego. The natural tendency of every human being as they grow up towards Manipura is to build an ego and to pamper that ego and to cultivate that ego. And that goes, goes exactly against the grain. Which means, if you have a bourgeois relationship, you want your partner in that relationship to support your ego. Like it doesn't go very well to be criticized by your partner. Because it makes you, it puts you down. I'm not saying necessarily that in a tantric relationship criticism is a way to solve things. But I'm just trying to put things into perspective. Because dealing with the ego can involve various modalities, but I cannot go as far down that line of thought. There will not be time in this one presentation. So, back to our story. 
if you are in a spiritual relationship, your partner is trying to put down your ego as often as possible and as much as possible. And believe me, for those of you who have not been in the spiritual battle in this life yet, and you don't know much about it, one simple fact. When somebody puts down your ego, in any way, that is, it hurts. It hurts like hell. And you feel like packing your gear and running. It's not pleasant. I remember the end of a video recording of Eckhart Tolle, in the end of one of his retreats, he made a weekend retreat about, uh, some, about his issues with the self, his Vedantic type of spirituality, with the power of now and the realization of self. And then in the end of this says, now that I'm concluding this weekend workshop, people out there in the New Age shops are going to include this video in the category self-improvement. But he said, really, what I have tried to do all this weekend is to do self-destruction. Because when people say self-improvement, that means I feel better, bigger, stronger, smarter. Eckhart Tolle said, if I am a real guru, I'm trying to destroy your ego. Your sense of ego, I try to drag it to the mud. Because I want you to realize that your ego is a mask and it's false. And it keeps you prisoner. Same thing in relationship. Do I want to have a relationship which increases my ego? Oh, my partner treats me like a king. Pampers me and tells me, Walter, how smart you are. And that's just increasing of the ego. But how will my partner be profoundly in love with me and supportive? And at the same time, put me down all the time. If my partner puts me down all the time, some things can go emotionally and mentally so wrong that relationship itself will not work. This is what Tantra calls the razor's edge. That you have to like walk on the razor's edge. A little step to the left, a little step to the right, you lost your path. A little step to the left, you start cultivating your ego. A little step too much to the right, and you destroy the love and the support, the spiritual support, which exists there. So it's a very narrow path. It's a very difficult way to find. That's why we have to think always, like, what is the purpose of this man-woman relationship? I can trace here, I have put on my paper here, to go through some principles, to give you a bit of a compass, to show where we come from uh, in Tantra, and then ultimately to get to the ideas, like to muse a little bit about what it is. Because many of you, at one point of your life or another, you may want to reevaluate, to draw a line, and to say, what have I done until now? I have been into this thing for one year, two years, five years, ten years. What have I done with it? Has this been a help or a nuisance? Like you can compare and say, in these ten years, I have done tantric spirituality. 
If I would have not done tantric spirituality, would I have been further down that line? Or not so much? Did it help? Or actually did I shoot myself in the foot by doing this? Am I self-sabotaging just because I'm interested in sex actually? Or is it really something constructive? Ultimately, we are talking about relationships, which are relationships of love. Love, ultimately, does not depend on the gender. Either we talk about the Buddhist loving kindness, or we talk about the love which Jesus is talking about. That love is not defined through gender. On the contrary, the love which I have for somebody to whom I am attracted by the gender reason is somehow complicated because it's love plus the infatuation produced by the inevitable hormonal attraction or whatever other factors are there. When Jesus is asked to define love, he does not use the example of a man and of a woman. Jesus does not give us archetypal example of love, a man and a woman. Because with a man and a woman, it's always a bit more complicated unless you are in Tantra. But Jesus is not teaching Tantra. No? And then things are more complicated. Because there is the other factor of the polarity, of the infatuation which appears. Jesus says, what love is there greater than when a man, out of love for his friends, gives his life willingly? Like Jesus says, that's love. Love is when one of the three musketeers says one for all and all for one. I die for you today. That's love, according to Jesus. And thus, remember that this love ultimately has no gender. The love is the love from Atman to Atman, from Jivatman to Jivatman, from Buddha nature to Buddha nature. It's the universal love. And that's very important to understand because if we had that in couples, in relationships, things would be totally different. Many of my disciples encounter difficulties which I did not encounter and I'm always a bit shocked. It's like a cold shower for me when somebody comes with that because I see some of you, you come to yoga for a month or two or three or for a season Or two, your Ishvara Pranidhana is great. You want spirituality. I can see that flame burning in your heart. I can see that honestly you want to be a more harmonious human being. I can see that honestly you want to grow up. I can see that honestly you want to reach to a greater knowledge. And then you go home to the family, to the previous friends and they have not been on the same trip with you. Even today, somebody was telling me, my family was astonished that I did not drink a lot together with them. It's like, what? You know, it's like, do you have a family that expects you to get sloshed? This person told me I actually drank a little bit. But they were surprised that I didn't drink like before. And that's the family, not friends. Now, of course, such a person, when they go home, 
If you want to keep the spirit of Patanjali and Shankaracharya alive, then you become separate from the family. Yes, I do know a few of you who have wonderful families where the family accepts. And there are people here who brought their mother, their father, their sister to yoga. And the family was interested and open. And that's a very good karma. But sometimes it doesn't work that way. And for some people, they go and they say, it was terrible. Some people say, I had to go. I had to put headphones. I took a night job. I didn't see anybody. I didn't have friends. I didn't, you know, I just worked to make money to be able to come to Kopangan the next season. And for the rest, I just stayed like a hermit. And it was so difficult. And they said for the first three months I kept it alive. Then I downloaded some satsangs from the internet. And I listened to them while I was cleaning the floor on my headphones. And it still gave me some aspiration. And in the last two months, I didn't manage to practice so much yoga. I kind of started forgetting and cooling down. Why? Because there was no support whatsoever. I was like lost in the jungle. I was like alone among total strangers. Like nobody. And if not, then there are people who say, I went home three three weeks later. I was clubbing. I was drinking. I was smoking. I was doing this. I was doing that. Like I was not able to keep because I'm a social person. I depend on my social interaction, and my social interaction were my old friends. And my old friends didn't know to do any of my yogic things. They drew me back into the old things. Why do I say that I've never been into this? Because when I started doing daily yoga practice, when I entered into spiritual practice full on, I had a very good friend, a man, not a woman. So, having a friend, it was like a love relationship. There were people who honestly thought that we were gay, that we were a gay couple. There was never anything sexual between us. We were the best friends in the world. We shared everything. We, you know, there was a a total communication. Everybody knew every obstacle and difficulty of the other one. We were not three musketeers or four. We were just two musketeers. But at least there was somebody else. And when there was somebody else, even if I was in a world which was communistic, atheistic, unspiritual in most aspects, it was not difficult. Not difficult at all. That's why I say that some people want love. I'm, now I'm coming back to the relationships in Tantra. Some people want relationship even as a substitute or a sort of complementary to a friendship. Like your Tantric lover, partner, can also be your best friend in the world. The person that understands you and that stands by you. And exactly as I and my friend, for years and years we supported each other, exactly the same thing you expect from a relationship. But the funny thing is that sometimes into a relationship, you get into fights, 
you get into struggles, you get into a lot of bitter things, and there the question is, is this a support? Is this a relationship or not? So that's why I'm bringing up this issue, because it's very, very easy to mix up things, and many people by... They don't understand why you guys in Tantra, you have so many special rules. Why things are so different. They are so different because if they are not different, then the relationships are mere bourgeois relationships. And in those bourgeois relationships, the result will be mediocre. It will not, and it will be slowing down your spiritual evolution. And again... If you are here just to find a new way of doing sexuality which improves generally your daily life, then that's good enough. The relationships in daily life are with ups and downs. Sometimes there are benefits, sometimes they are not. You can meet men and women who are 70 years old and who bless each other or curse each other. Both exist. There are men and women who say, your presence in my life has brought a lot of light. And there are men and women who said, your presence in my life was shit. And if I, if I would have to relive my life, I would gladly live it without you. Thank you. You know, it's like it's been bitterness all through. And thus, um, even at the, the lev- at the level of the daily life, it's acceptable that relationship, it's a lottery, it's a Russian roulette. You're going to have some marriages, some relationships, something, and they are going to be brilliant or not. But when you are in spiritual tantra, when you are in spiritual yoga, there you have a project, you have a very clear path to follow. And there you cannot afford to play Russian roulette. It's not the time for playing this game of dice, and I'm going to do Tantra, and in Tantra I'm going to have Tantric relationships, and uh, sometimes they don't work. Well, if they don't work, then why have them? No, like, why complicate your life? Either you do it right, or you don't do it at all. Just to start from the top, of course, our relationships between a man and a woman in Tantra... They have the divine archetype of Shiva and Shakti. We attach our chariot to a star, or like Jesus says, be perfect as the Father in heaven is. There is an archetype, and it's very difficult to copy that archetype, but it still stays as a model of perfection. It's a model that guides us. And this model of Shiva and Shakti means lots of things. I'm not going to insist now in Kashmiri Shaivism, in metaphysics and other workshops and teachings of this school. We talk about this paradigm, about this perfect archetype, but I'm simply trying to just draw the chart for you to tell you. In Tantra, first of all, relationships start from the Shiva Shakti principle. As Shiva is to Shakti and as Shakti is to Shiva... So do tantric men try to be to women, and so do tantric women try to be to men. They try to have this archetypal, wonderful relationship. Next, because this is more metaphysics, next there comes the relationships between beings with high spiritual realization, 
and beings with great aspiration. In spirituality, in case you didn't know, but of course you have heard anecdotally here and there, there are great personalities who have not been alone. Who have been, either they have been celibate, like Francis of Assisi and Chiara, Clara, Claire, the two Italian Catholic saints in the 12th century, or they have been practicing some tantric things, like Ramakrishna and Sarada Devi, still there are such examples of great beings who have become the second line. Like the first degree is Shiva and Shakti, which is cosmic archetypal of the nature of principles. The second degree is the people who made it to that level, and they are sort of illustration of it. There you have, where you see examples of such uh, exemplary relationships which are revolutionary, non-conventional, very often in the history of people like Padmasambhava, Guru Rinpoche, the founder of Tibetan Buddhism, who is declared to have had relationships like uh, different, different famous relationships in his, of tantric nature, I mean, with women. Drukpa Kunle, the famous divine madman, uh, a special biography of one of the greatest yogis of the history of Bhutan. Um, Saint Francis of Assisi, who is a very, very rare example of a Christian monk completely dedicated to Jesus and to Mary, and who at the same time was in love with a nun, or with a woman who he converted to monkhood, and she was living in another monastery, hours away from his. The tantric temple dancers from India, who are having a devotion to Shiva, and the quest for Shiva, but were allowed to have sexual and human relationships with the society, Brahmakrishna and his famous Sarada Devi, Krishna and Radha plus the 1000 gopis, Mahatma Gandhi who was a married man and at the same time was a great spiritual seeker, Sri Aurobindo who was a great yogi and at the same time he produced the great yogini that was called the mother who was his companion his partner, and even in these examples of archetypal relationships, we see, of course, some typologies due to the social integration, like a great relationship from India, and a great relationship from Japan, and a great relationship from Israel. They are going to be different, necessarily. And thus, even there, we already don't live in the world of the principle, is the world of the principle which is tinged by some human um, considerations, by some human factors. And then we reach to the beings with lesser spiritual realization, the seekers, the people who are on the path, some of you here in this hall, and some of you here in this school, you consider yourselves spiritual seekers, and you consider yourselves tantric practitioners, and therefore such seekers are trying to integrate, and this integration does not come spontaneously. I'm not going to talk now, I had here in plan tonight, but I think I'll leave it for another time,
to talk about this role that tantric men and tantric women is a little bit of a role playing. This is something which will help you understand our workshops of complete femininity and of the viras. Because many people, especially in the gender confusion of these days, of Kali Yuga, they ask themselves, why do these guys from Agama want that man should be man and that women should be women? Why not cultivate a sort of ambiguity, a sort of a gender ambiguity? And remember, in Tantra, we follow some patterns. It's a role-playing. It's exactly like you would start improvising on Hamlet. And you would have a Hamlet, the director wants you to play Hamlet, and then you come in G-string bikinis as Hamlet. And you say, I think it's better for the role that I should be butt-naked and in a G-string bikini. No, then, then it's not Shakespeare anymore. It may be a brilliant thing that you do, but it's not Shakespeare anymore. So therefore, as long as you align with some principles, then automatically there is a role-playing. There is an integration in the yin and the yang, like in the Taoism and so on. So, I had a lot of things to say there, but attention, the problem there is that attention must focus upon spiritual things, not inferior things. Today, in the modern world, we live in a world in which half of the people are jellyfish on Zvadistana and they just care about their pleasures and instincts. And then another half of the people are people with a bit of Manipura or with more Manipura and all they care is about the ego and the prosperity of their own ego, the welfare, the well-being of their own ego. And that's why today we witness a society where everybody is asking for rights. You look at the way the United Nations, everybody is claiming for rights. Nobody says we should have duties. No? Like, I want to be the king of the jungle. I have the right to be the king. I am one of the citizens of this planet. I could be the king of the jungle. But in nature, the rabbit cannot be the king of the jungle. Because the lion will kill him in two seconds. In nature, any right has to be won. There are duties. If you want to be the king of the jungle, then you have to be the fastest, strongest, smartest of all the animals of the jungle. Otherwise, you won't be the king of the jungle. In the human society, people are asking for it. Give me the power. That Do you have the power to do that? You don't. You didn't win your power. It's just a theory in your head. And thus, unfortunately, we have this inflation of the ego which goes in the bourgeois relationships where everybody is asking for me, 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 my ego, my rights, I want this, I want that. Uh, I'm going to mention exactly an example referring to this when I take the factors one by one. And unfortunately, therefore, people focus a lot on pampering their ego and they focus on inferior things and the spiritual things are forgotten. No? If Ramakrishna and Sarada Devi would have focused on uh, who takes the garbage out of the house, it's like, you know, this wouldn't have been Ramakrishna and Sarada Devi. 
they knew their place in the universe. They did exactly what they had to do. And they lived in an archetypal type of harmony. And this is very important to understand. There are factors influencing relationships, such as the basic typologies, like if you are sanguine, melancholic, choleric, phlegmatic, or the astrological signs, if you are fire, water, earth, whatever. Your typology, according to the system called the Enneagram, what type you are on the Enneagram, then there are the typical masculine, feminine things like men are from Mars and women are from Venus and men speak 3,000 words per day and women speak 8,000 words per day, you know, and that automatically requires some strategies because without some strategies you'll never fit a 3,000 word per day talking to an 8,000 word per day person, you know. So... Therefore, there are many factors which influence if you know that your boyfriend or girlfriend is a Gemini or a Scorpio or it is a phlegmatic or a sanguine temperament or it is a very talkative or non-talkative factor or is a number one or a number seven on the Enneagram or all these things need to be studied. These are things which we show to you to show that first of all a relationship is based on a chemistry. The great Goethe, he called them elective affinities. I don't know exactly the original German words which he used for it, because he wrote in German, but with a difficult English translation, they would be translated as elective affinities. Affinities. You say, I have affinities with somebody. Affinities which means we fit. And then elective affinities. I fit with 200 people, but I choose three or one. Why not? And that is elective. I choose. And even the animals, when even the penguins in the march of the penguins, when they mate, they just go around and go around and go around until they find the magnetic fitting with one. Not everybody can be automatically partner with everybody. Even the penguins don't understand why one is attractive and one is not. Maybe it's the astrological sign under which they are born or something. We don't know if it works for the penguins as well. But what is important is that even the penguins have elective affinities. For the human being, which is so much more complex in its emotions, personal history... Karma, aspirations, all the things of Manomayakosha and Vigyanamayakosha, the astral body and the mental body, these affective, these uh, affinities, these elective affinities, they are much more complex. And that's why, of course, the relationship is first influenced by the affinities, by the elective affinities, which are expressed astrologically in other ways. But afterwards... Now comes the culture, because the elective affinities is like the rock bottom. It's like a sperm fertilizes an egg. And there you have a human being coming up. The DNA is clear, but this human being with a DNA can grow up in a hundred thousand different ways, depending 
on the environment, depending on the diet of the mother, depending on the events, happy or unhappy, in the life of the mother and father, depending on the way the childbirth is performed, depending on the food during the first years of life, depending on the traumas which can be added to the education of the child or of which that child can be spared, and so on and so forth. That's why the relationship starts because of your affinities with each other, but then you have to check out how it goes, how it grows, where does it go in its development. And for this purpose, I want to bring some final arguments like thinking, think, some of you are not interested too much in Tantra, some of you contemplate it in a future, some of you are a little bit afraid of it and you are just dipping your baby toe into it a little bit to see, mm, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Some of you have been in it for a while and these musings, which I'm coming on with now, they are just meant for you to have a sort of a check a checklist to see to which extent do you understand the spiritual relationship and to which extent this is helping you or to which extent you have shot yourself in the foot and it's not helping you. For example, tantric relationships are meant to attain love. There is no doubt the Tantra is a path of love. The least one can hope to reach is the love of the heart. Sex, infatuation, pleasure, attraction, they are all boiled, boiled, distilled, distilled, sublime, sublime, and eventually they will reach at least here. Are they? Does it work for you in that way? We can go to more metaphysical concepts of love, like compassion, loving kindness, a love which is spiritualized, mentalized, intellectualized to a large extent. But still, it's meant to go to love. I don't know, but if you read Khalil Gibran, if you read Rumi, if you read Jesus' sayings and many Christian saints, if you read what was written about love in Bhakti Yoga in India, if you read Buddha's comments upon loving kindness and others, you find, for example, that love has many tears. Khalil Gibran says, if you think that love is only joy and laughter, you are sorely wrong. And Khalil Gibran is pretty tough. He says, if you are not willing to take the tears of love, then he says, go away, go away, because you will laugh, but your laugh will be pale, your laughter will be pale and without depth. You'll laugh, but not with all your laughter. You'll live, but not with all your liveliness, because you have to accept love with the pain contained into it. No? And he says, he gives beautiful metaphors about love in that famous quote about love, of Gibran, of Gibran, and many others use the same metaphor. So the question is, when you go in love, are you prepared for the tears? Do you realize that there will be tears? Are you expecting a Hollywood Cinderella adventure 
where you get married to a handsome prince and live happily ever after? It means your emotional maturity is around the age of 12 or 13. You haven't grown up in your head. You are still dreaming about the prince on the white horse which does not exist. Love has tears even in the case of Krishna and Radha. Even in the case of Aurobindo and the mother. Even in the case of Ramakrishna and Sarada Devi. It's impossible that it will not have tears. Because it confronts the ego. It takes us to detachment. And sometimes we don't want to go where love takes us. Love is abnegation. It's selflessness. It is detachment. And it will not happen without tears. Even the most good-willing practitioners, sometimes they have a hiccup when they have to go beyond some of the limits of their own ego. And thus, meditate. Many of you are interested in Tantra and in relationships, but it's a path of love, and love has tears. Are you ready? Or you just want a joyful, merry-go-happy type of relationship, and as soon as it gets bitter, or as soon as you go deep, and you start biting the dust, your ego starts biting the dust, then you run. Then it's over. Then I, I do not dare to go deep into the things because of avoiding the tears of love. Tantric relationships, and a second idea, are meant to attain realization of one's true self and thus of diminishing of the ego. Here are three Manipura chakra characteristics of the ego. Just three, I mean, I can give you a hundred. But here are just three to set your mind into motion. Pride, respect, vanity. How is your relationship going to reveal you your true self if your relationship is pampering your vanity, your pride, and your respect? How many times did I not hear men and women complaining, my boyfriend doesn't respect me. Good. Good. He should crush you. He should dance a jig on your head. He should make you into a doormat. Then let's see if you can still love. Then let's see if you have the humbleness to love unconditionally. When your ego is turned into tatters, you expect a tantric relationship to boast your ego, then it's not a tantric relationship. And in the end, you are going to be like the wife of Mao Zedun. No? You become a dragon woman. No? You become a monster, basically. The ego is increasing instead of decreasing. That's a huge problem. So try to meditate. How is my relationship helping me to diminish Pride, vanity, arrogance, my eternal need for respect. You know, who needs to be respected? You are God. You are all Buddhas to be. Why do you need to be respected? You already are the infinite. God doesn't ask for any respect. Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. 
And they were so embarrassed, Peter said, I will not let you wash my feet for anything in the world. And Jesus told him, if you don't let me wash your feet, you will not become enlightened. Like, I have to wash your feet. And then he said, the Son of Man did not come in this world to be served, but to serve. I am here to serve you. Unfortunately, he was not allowed to serve. If they allowed Jesus to live another 30 years, he would have served the world for another 30 years. He was not allowed to serve, but he was there to serve. Therefore, try to think, how does my relationship favor the revelation of my true self, not of this horrible mask, which always masquerades and is asking for respect, pride, vanity. No, then I'm going to find myself that I'm 80 years old, I'm ready to die, and I'm still full of ego, vanity, pride. No, and eventually what did I solve? Nothing. No, my life was wasted because I was afraid to challenge my ego. I was afraid to challenge myself and this limited vision which I have about myself. Tantric relationships. Therefore, in the one with the ego and uh, this, I wanted to conclude by saying that one has to sacrifice oneself. That's the concept of sacrifice. Relationships are a sacrifice. The mother of Sri Aurobindo, she survived Sri Aurobindo with 30-40 years. She was an exemplary case of self-sacrifice. That woman lived in India after Aurobindo passed away and she fought and fought and fought, not for her dream, but for the dream of Aurobindo. Aurobindo saw a city of yoga, a city of God, the mother patiently for 30, 40 years, she started building it. It's a sacrifice. It's like giving yourself to a cause, like Mother Teresa. You wake up at 5 o'clock in the morning, and you cook food for hungry children. You like it or you don't like it, you wake up at 5 o'clock in the morning and you cook. That's your sacrifice. You do it. Don't think it's always smiles and happy. It's not. Anybody has been in the spiritual life, knows that it's not always a walk in the park. The tantric relationships are meant to create spiritual evolution. And then you can ask yourself, how can a re relationship support spirituality? Like, does my relationship support me to do practice, to experiment, to learn something new? Or is it just a subject of nuisance and boredom and other such things? What are the characteristics of a relationship then that can call itself spiritual? What creates spiritual evolution? You find men and women, they have been together for 30 years and they are good people. There is goodness. Ludwig van Beethoven, for those of you who have been in the metaphysical workshop, you heard that. You know, because Ludwig van Beethoven, who is an outsider to spirituality in many ways, he said, for me there is only one sign of evolution, goodness. 
Like, if people are wicked, they are monkeys. And if they are good, they are almost angels. No? So it's like Beethoven, who was again not a spiritual guru and not a member of Shambhala or something like this. Beethoven said, for me, evolution means goodness. Like, I would bow down to a person and I would say, I can see you are an evolved human being. I respect you. No? Because I can see you are good. The people from Shambhala are archetypally considered to be good protectors of humanity. When Swami, I'm sorry, when Swami Chidananda in Rishikesh was asked to speak about his great guru, Swami Shivananda, he was a wise man. He chose the right words. He said, what can I tell you about a yogi who lived a hundred years ago and was from India? And he said, what I can tell you is this, Swami Shivananda was a great friend of humanity. Some people, some of you, will be also in this life friends of humanity. All humanity is your friend. You want to help them. While some people shit on humanity. They piss on humanity. They don't care. It's me, 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 and everybody can go to hell. I don't care. Therefore, indeed, how does a relationship makes people more good or makes people more demonic, more selfish, more dark, more wicked. Tantric relationships are meant to lead to transfiguration. Ramakrishna, even though in the beginning apparently, because it's a very controversial subject, apparently he taught Sarada Devi the left-hand tantric techniques, it is known that towards the end of his life, as he lost more and more vitality and he became sick, he went in more and more into the right hand tantra, like his relationship was a non-sexual relationship to her. And he was worshipping Sarada Devi as a goddess. Literally, he was putting her on a throne and adorning her and worshipping her like a goddess. A relationship goes to transfiguration. The woman who was called whatever she was called, I forgot her name, she came and spent a number of years with Sri Aurobindo, and Sri Aurobindo said, you are the mother of this ashram, you are a mother for this humanity. And people for the next 30, 40 years, they called her the mother, and she became a legendary character. This is transfiguration. Instead of telling her, oh, you are just a stupid French woman, shut up, sometimes you are so pissing, irritating, and so No, where? This is not transfiguration. Where is the transfiguration going in this condition? And you can see that many people, as they get sexually bored and flat with each other, they get irritated by each other's egos, stepping on each other's toes, then there is no transfiguration. Then the other one is not a Devi, is not a mother. The other one is a person with many, many problems. And people hate each other and dislike each other. You hear so many cases of people, as they get older, instead of becoming wiser with each other, they hate each other bitterly. People that have been in a couple for 40 years, and then one day the woman took an axe and smashed his head with an axe. That must be great love after 40 years. No? After you've been with somebody for 40 years, you crack their head with an axe. 
how did how does one get to that no, that's definitely not transfiguration that that relationship is death it's so much better to separate and go each your way rather than reaching there than reaching to such a hell living in such a hell and producing such a karma which in the next life will give you more hell because you started you opened that box of pandora Tantric relationships are meant to create oneness. So where is the oneness? Evaluate. Am I going into more and more oneness? Or am I just losing my path? And it's more and more division. You do your thing. Here's your bank book. No, if it's oneness, shouldn't we have the same thing? I experienced old-fashioned families... They didn't have two bank accounts. There was just one bank account in the family. It's not the husband's plastic card and the wife's plastic card. Or if there are two plastic cards, they go into the same account. No? Like people today, they can't even share money. You can see it from money. When people can't share sex and when they can't share money, then what, what can they share? Is this oneness? No. It's egoism. I'm doing my business, you are doing your business. As not oneness. And the list could continue, but I just gave you these musings, these ideas, to make you understand why there is in Tantra a refusal of the traditional models of relationships. So, if you don't find a wise type of relationship, then it's like Sri Aurobindo said, you are falling between two chairs. At least if you live in the bourgeois world, you go by the rules of the bourgeois world, you may use yoga to make your life a bit better, but if you really want to become the other thing, then you have to find something else. And this should not be done halfway. Sri Aurobindo was talking about people who try to stop the worldly ways, but are not determined enough to go full on into what saves them. And then they, they fall between the two chairs. Like if you lifted your butt off this chair, then make sure that you put it on the next chair. Because otherwise it's not a success. Otherwise stay where you were. It's okay to stay where you were. Thus, it's important to, to choose one path very clearly and all the, all the other developments which you hear about in the Tantra courses they are developments coming from these things that we talk about open relationships, closed relationships, single relationships multiple relationships this and that they are all developments which are coming first from choosing this path clearly. Like, okay, do I want to have these relationships in this life or not? No, I don't know if I can administer relationships. It's a very difficult subject. Therefore, I prefer to live without. Like, I am a lonely wolf struggling for myself. Or, I choose to have relationships, but then... I want to declare very clearly how my relationships are going 
to be. And again, I wrote here a few things which would send me on a line of thought which I don't want to open at this hour of the night. Therefore, I will conclude simply by uh, calling your attention on this factor. Evaluate, because this is not rocket science, really, in the meaning that the common sense can teach us a lot. I have seen in my life at least 50% which people come and talk to me about when they come to interviews is about relationships. It's trouble in relationships. The other 50% is about their spiritual practice with its successes and with its obstacles, which are, of course, always to be expected. I know from simple experience in the field that relationships constitute a problem for many people. If I would be the guru of a celibate monastery or ashram, if you'd come with such a problem, I would send you to Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. I would simply say, go to Kopangan and talk to them. Because here we don't do this. And you are asking me about something which is not happening in our community. And I'm not even advocating it in any way. So it's like, it's not my field of development. Or I would use some antiquated patterns from the tradition. Like Paul, the Apostle of Christ, when in one of his letters, he says, if it were according to me, I should say that you should all be celibate as I am. That's what Paul says. But I talked to God, and God told me that you can't all be like me. And because of that, we have to kind of loosen the screw a little bit for you, and to give you a bit more relaxed rules. And therefore, here is what I'm advising you to do. And Paul gives a few rules about the man-woman relationship in Christianity, which have been cherished for almost 2,000 years in Christianity, and which very many modern people would consider like, oh boy, you know, this is so old-fashioned. No, so, such as he says, the man should be the head, and the woman should be the body. And the relationship between the man and the woman should be like the relationship between the head and its body. The head depends on the body for its survival, and the body depends on the head for taking the guiding lines and decisions and all that. Not many of you would be willing to live like the head and the body, although some of you proclaim yourselves Christian. That's the Christian line since 2,000 years. And thus... What I'm saying is, of course, if we want some Vedic rules, some traditional rules, some Christian rules, we find them. But otherwise, the fact is that relationships are a source of trouble. And the source of trouble is that some people take their tantric practice very seriously and they say, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it. No, like there are some people here who tell me I could have been trading stocks on Wall Street. If I would have been a real smart one, I, I could have had days where I made a million dollars in that one day. So it's like, if I'm coming to Kopangan 
and I'm doing two hours of headstand every day, then I won't do stocks on Wall Street. So if I give up the $1 million per day job, then I have to know why I gave up that $1 million per day job. Because otherwise, I'm an idiot and a loser. And therefore, the people who think correctly, they think if I'm doing something, it has to be worth it. Like it seems that my personal evolution, my growth, my access to happiness, my access to myself is essential. But then I have to make sure that I don't botch that. I have to be sure that I don't fail that. Because if I fail the first and if I fail the second, then I'm like Sri Aurobindo said, I'm falling between two chairs. And thus, um, we don't want to have I in Agama. I sometimes am making a bit of irony and fun of the people who come to spirituality from the so-called hippie environment. A little bit of Asvadistanistic, marijuana smoking, hippie, new age, backpacker type of person. Because in my opinion, such persons have a huge risk to fall between two chairs. They don't make a million dollars per day and they don't reach nirvana as well. I would say bummer. It's a bummer. No? So it's like the correct way is that when you do something, you should do it with a purpose, with a goal. And thus, even with Tantra, remember that this story of the Tantric relationships, it's slippery. Because people want to live in their comfort zone. And it's difficult to step out of your comfort zone. And Tantra is asking you to do exactly that. Because in your comfort zone, things are not going to be changed. Things are going to change when you step out of the comfort zone. And thus... The things go the same with tantric relationships. The tantric relationships along history, they have been unorthodox, controversial, provocative, because of this desperate quest for love, for enlightenment, for freedom, which required different rules of the game. Different rules of the game. And thus, be advised because you are in the middle of a Tantra process in this school, especially these days with all these uh, workshops and retreats that we organize for you at this time of the year. And uh, that's what you learn. That's what you study. You are learning about how to live relationships in another way. You cannot, we are not teaching you the relationships of your grandmother. And like a tantric master once said to Julien Tondriot, a French researcher, he said it would be absurd to imagine that in Tantra, just because you multiply the number of the sexual relationships, and instead of having sex two times per week, you have sex seven times per week, that's going to take you to enlightenment. Because it's not a matter of quality. 
is that something different happens during that process. And thus, the same I have to say about relationships. Is your relationship building you spiritually? Is the other person like a mirror showing you who you are? Is the other person supporting your spirituality? Like if the other person sees that you want to meditate, that you want to do Hatha Yoga, that you want to read something spiritual, is the other person supporting you or disturbing you, sabotaging you? And the list could continue. No, Some people say, last evening, yesterday, I had a terrible day. I couldn't even meditate because I quarreled with my husband and it was terrible. Was that a part of your process of growing towards nirvana? Or was that just a loop, just a detour on the way? And ultimately, when you'll be 75 years old and look back at your life, you'll say, why did I waste so much time at that time in my life? I wasted enormous amounts of time just by, you know, just boringly doing the same thing and hammering in the same spot stupidly. No? Like, try to think in the perspective of, of a lifetime, in the perspective of several lifetimes, then you'll understand. Because if not, really, honestly, some tough tantrics from India and Tibet, they prefer to say, okay, sex can be used as a method. You put the lingam into the yoni, you reach to a state of effervescence of energy, the energy is being sublimed and transmuted into a state of bliss, and it reaches to the heart chakra, to agnya chakra, to the crown chakra, and there you can experience a heightened state of consciousness, which afterwards, if you prolong with meditation, it's bliss, it's enlightenment. Then, what's the use of relationship in all this? When it's a practice. But it's a practice where, incidentally, you need somebody else's body to make it work. You need somebody else's energy to make it work. You need somebody else's emotions to make it work. You need somebody else's mind and soul to make it work. So it's a, it's a group job. It works only by chemistry, by bringing the yin and the yang together. Then try to evaluate how it works for you. If you are in relationships just because you are afraid to be alone, if you are in relationships just because you are a beggar and you are needy, if you are in relationships because you have something to give, like think, when I go into a relationship, what do I have to give? Like a man can say, I have a brilliant intelligence, I have a sharp mind, I am very lucid and very present. Or a woman can say, I am not very smart, but I'm having a body of a goddess and I'm having energy as much as ten women put together. If you discover what you have to give, then there is something which you can give as a gift. You are not coming like a beggar. Find which is your strong part. Find which is your quality. And go for that quality. Practice it. No, I can say, 
uh, I am a little bit of a boring person who keeps repeating the same thing. And you know what? Then I better shut up. Zip it, you know? Zip it. Don't keep repeating the same thing in a relationship because you don't want to bore the other person to death. Then I'm saying, I know that I'm a boring person. Let's meditate. Let's just meditate. It's better than me repeating some old farts again, you know, again and again. So this is what I'm talking about. Evaluate your relationships. How do they contribute to your growth? If they contributed to your spiritual development in the last six months or in the last six years, are they going to contribute the same in the next six months and in the next six years? More? Less? You are running a race. You are having a project. And in this project, you have to be lucid and not let yourself caught in. I have the feeling that sometimes people come to a tantric school and they say, oh, nice. I haven't heard about that until now. Nice. Here I can be spiritual and have some hanky-panky as well. Nice. Good. Yes. And then they swallow this relationship thing without chewing on it, without thinking. It's like it comes like a package deal. And it's like, yeah, sure. And you are supposed to have relationships and maybe not. Maybe they are a nightmare for you, those relationships. Maybe they are going to make you waste your time, your precious time in this life. Think. It always has to be a deliberate choice. You have to have an informed choice when you do these things. And that's why I call your attention in this little satsang tonight precisely on this theme How do you make your relationship meaningful?